Lady Elves and Gentle Orcs, this brings us to episode one of whatever the hell we're calling this. I've got some ideas about that, but we're going to move on from that at this point. Uh, I am Professor Funky, joined by, as usual, my co-host, Arya. Hi, I'm Arya. Well, him pronouns. Uh, Arya, tell us a little bit about yourself. Cool. So I use they, them pronouns. I've been jamming on and off for the better part of a decade, I'd say at least seven years. And I've worked in a variety of systems, from the crunchy to the not-so-crunchy. And yeah, I have some opinions on them, and I'm happy to share them. Marvelous, marvelous. Yeah, that's the whole idea here. So um, I'm Professor Funky. I've been GMing for almost 20 years. Well, actually, no, I think it is officially 20 years. My first game was when I was just a, just a wee lad and have been running everything from Dungeons & Dragons to Call of Cthulhu, now Apocalypse Keys, Mutant Year Zero, kind of everything in between. So yeah, we both got that that real pedigree of different systems and different backgrounds coming together, you know, and like you said, we got some opinions about this. So let's get into it. This week we are talking about our favorite and least favorite things. Keeping that real general, you know, episode one, keep it nice and easy. You know, Arya, I want to start with you because you had an interesting topic here. What's your what's your favorite thing about a tabletop role-playing game you've seen? Okay, so one of my favorite systems is Shadowrun 5th Edition. It's a fantastic setting with a lot of support. Like, if you want to run any sort of campaign, you really can in that setting if you put in the work. The thing I really like most about Shadowrun is the crunch. It's got some very fantastic, very grounded systems that I really do enjoy as a GM and as a player. I find the math very very elegant as well. For those of you who aren't familiar, Shadowrun uses a dice pool system of D6s where hits are on fives and sixes. So you can very easily go, all right, in order to get three successes, I need to, on average, be throwing six die. That means I need to build my character this way. It informs everything off of that. But dice pools get away from something that I don't particularly care about in D&D which is it gives a nice, smooth, probabilistic curve instead of the bounded accuracy mentality that we get in D&D. Yeah, it's all about the all about the bell curve. Absolutely. So just for our any of our listeners that might not be aware, define for me crunch. What does that mean to you? Okay, cool. Crunch is the opposite of a game like Fiasco. And Fiasco, that's a role-playing board game, I guess you would call it where the dice rolls are informative, but they aren't really doing skill checks. Your character is not well-defined, and it's really more of a, does a good thing happen to me, or does a bad thing happen to me? Crunch is about the dice. It's about the rules. It's about the game within the game. Yes, it's the technical aspects of playing the game. If this were a video game, it would be something along the lines of a very technically involved game where you have a lot of different stats and a lot of granularity. Think a grand strategy game versus now a lighter indie game where you have less expression. Both of them, you're in a world, you're doing things, but one of them is using its mechanics to simulate a deeper experience and exposing more of that inner math to the player. 
Okay, so like a high crunch video game might be like Kerbal Space Program, and a low crunch video game might be something like, I don't know, Spiritfarer, something else where you're, you're really just there for the vibes. Yes, that's exactly it. That's not to say that a low crunch system does not make decisions informed on stats or different objects in the world. But what that does mean is that in a higher crunch system, you're trying to simulate reality more accurately through these skill checks. As someone that, you know, I at least like a lot, it sounds like high crunch is your verisimilitude. That's your ability to, to feel like this is real, at least as much as fantasy is real. Yes, and Shadowrun in particular, that was the original pitch. For those who don't know, Shadowrun has been around for a long, long time. The first edition's coming out shortly after some of the original Dungeons & Dragons editions. And it was billed as kind of a hardcore alternative, like, oh, are you not getting enough stats? Are you not able to interact with the world? Is, are you finding these systems limited? Well, come play Shadowrun. It's hardcore. And that's actually, that's funny you bring that up because it's one of the histories that I've really delved into over the years is that history of RPG renaissances and Shadowrun was really part of the original. You know, we see still Gary Gygax functioning at this point. TSR is still his company when Shadowrun is released. And some believe, and I, I tend to be one of those, that second edition of Dungeons & Dragons, advanced Dungeons & Dragons, where we got all that granularity of rules and where third edition kind of came out of and was a response to, was because of Shadowrun and its contemporaries saying, you're nerds, you like dice, you like simulationist fantasy, let's go crazy here. Exactly. Whereas it's not just, gosh, the lowest crunch system I can think of is if you're doing a collaborative storytelling session where you flip a coin and if it comes up heads, a good thing happens. And if it comes up tails, a bad thing happens. <laughs> That's pretty much it. Yeah. For any of our listeners who might know some of the more common ones today, like Wander Home, I think is really, really low crunch. And I tend to put the spectrum as crunch versus fluff. And I think that Wander Home is really fluffy, very low crunch, is very high fluff. And it's really a about you are people wandering home and it's even game masterless. It is really meant to be some people sitting at a table, talking through some stuff, having a good time playing a role and playing a character. But the actual aspects of that character come into it very, very little. Yes, and those are fantastic, don't get me wrong. Some of my favorite Halloween games that I've played have been games that are in that vein. But yeah, whenever I reach for an ideal game or something that I really can dig into, the crunchiness appeals to me and my brain specifically. Absolutely. Yeah. So it sounds like Shadowrun has that. It's got that granularity that you're looking for. It's got lots of numbers, lots of things to manipulate, lots of pieces and parts to move around to make your Shadowrunner who you want them to be and to do the things that they should be able to do. Yeah, let me give you a specific example, actually. In a standard combat role, you will have a attack check opposed by a dodge check. Then, if it goes through, like your character can't dodge out of the way, you also have a soap check, and there's armor piercing and armor damage, and all of these things are tracked in a very real way. It really can help with your character builds a lot. If you're a big, tanky troll, you don't have to have the points in dodge if you can just have the body stat to soak all that damage. It allows you to really shape your character as you see fit, as compared to something like armor class. Armor class from Dungeons & Dragons, where I am rolling a die and it goes above that number, or possibly below that number if you're playing Thaco, but <laughs> um <laughs> We don't bring up Thaco. Yeah. 
we've we've taken all of that nuance and how you're building your character and we're abstracting it to go like oh are you really dexterous cool you dodge out of the way are you a big paladin you tank the head it's effectively the same but with Shadowrun, there's so many degrees of what you can do and what your character is good at the nuance really appeals to me compared to other systems it sounds like it, it appeals to the the person who wants to be what they want to be I can take anything in D&D and make it spectacular if I'm a fun role player who has fun ideas and I can say, yeah, I've got a high AC because I'm high dexterity. Well, that means I'm always dodging out of the way and flipping and and, and doing kicks and shit. <laughs> and my buddy over here can say, well, I have a high AC because I wear heavy armor. And that means that I take your hit and go, ha, 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 no one cares. And, and that's all wonderful. Ultimately, any system like that abstracts out something like armor class or the ability to be hit in combat could be done by anyone. Any Anyone who is interested in that sort of thing could abstract it out, could make it interesting, could say, yes, I dodge out of the way and get ready for my next attack as my action is next in combat. But Shadowrun, it sounds like, is making you do that and is making even the lesser players among some of us say, I have this high soak, so I'm not going to dodge out of the way. That's fine. I'm just going to take that hit and keep on rolling. Exactly. And I appreciate that there is a real difference in that. Instead of treating it as one umbrella thing, we instead get this nice gradient. As a nimble elf, I do not have to worry necessarily about having a lot of soak rolls if I can dodge most things. So I, I think that then comes immediately into... What is your least favorite thing in a tabletop role-playing game? Oh, all right. If we're going here right away. Yeah. Some of my least favorite things in role-playing, it can be the crunch. So I realize that I just have contradicted a lot of my points, but hear me out. Hear really, me out. It's a divisive topic. I actually think this is one of the fundamental things I've heard discussed in the RPG space since... Literally since I started, when I was a young, young kid, my GM at the time, Jason, one of my best friends, he was much older than me, and he talked all the time, and this is in the 90s, or sorry, early 2000s, and and he was still talking about this. Like, this whole crunch versus fluff thing has been a thing for 20 plus years, probably more like 40 at this point. That sounds correct, yeah. <laughs> I would not be very much surprised at that at all. How far into the simulation as fantasy do we get before we turn into Dwarf Fortress, the TTRPG? Right, and it's just no longer fun anymore. If we were to look at every era of role-playing games and how they're different from each other, which one day I will, that is on my list, <laughs> <laughs> we would see this constant reflection and reaction to exactly that argument. Gary Gygax started doing his thing. We then got more granular. We then got slightly less granular. We then got way more granular. And then we got significantly less granular. And all of that is just reactions to the previous generation, the previous renaissance. Yeah. And that's a perfect segue into my next point. What I really am thinking when it comes to crunch is that it's very awesome for me on a very personal level. I can buy in. I can understand the systems. But it takes a significant overhead from your players. It requires buy-in at the table. You can't just pick up a game of Shadowrun and expect to do less than a full session of character creation um, if you haven't yeah. done it before. I think another big point is when we are going for this more Simulationist 5, but 
sometimes the rules have weird edges where they aren't supposed to. For example, there's tons of things in Shadowrun about the explosive rules and damage value of walls and what you can do, rules as written, is when a grenade goes off in an enclosed area, if the walls make their armor check, the explosion rebounds in to get that simulation of a grenade going off in an enclosed space. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. Although you did just get into one of my trigger words, rules as written. God, that brings me back in a bad way. Yeah, yeah, well... <laughs> I mean, also, like, rules is written, you can make a car that goes faster than the speed of light because it's a exponential scaling kind of thing um, oh, for, for vehicle speed, yeah. Uh, exactly. These are, like, I need to at once be architecting how much I can get away with and how much of this stimulation people can really get into versus what, what are we even doing? <laughs> and in the combat encounter I just described... That can be three or four die rolls. Oh, Jesus. And that's right. for one yeah. attack, right? Yeah, exactly. So if you know what you're doing and everybody knows their values and can do it very quickly, it can just go, okay, cool, done. Here are my values. We can move on to the next turn. And it can get quick, but it will never be as quick as a D20 roll versus AC. Yeah, where you can even roll your attack and damage at the same time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's definitely a thing that really appeals to me on an intellectual level. But whenever I brought it to the table, I've had to saw off some of those rough edges and sand it down and go, this is how we're doing it. This is how we're doing cyberspace and matrix actions in this so particular now this instance. More house ruling and more Aria saying, well, this is just how we're going to run it because the system's insane. Well, yeah, there's also a well-known thing with the hacking subclass and Shadowrun in particular, which is the pizza problem, which I love if you've never heard of this one before. Are you familiar? I, I actually haven't. Please enlighten me to the pizza problem. Oh, oh, the pizza problem. Okay. So the Decker or Hacker class in the Shadowrun universe, they interact with the Matrix, which they actually came up with at first, but it's ah. this cyberspace all computers are connected you're physically reaching out and going into the system and you're fighting intrusion countermeasures or ice drones and what this means in game master terms is you are making a dungeon specifically for the hacker so every time they want to hack something well in traditional systems yes they have streamlined this in fourth and fifth edition with the advent of wireless stuff and there are more actions you can take in combat which i very much approve of to make like a hacking check to like eject a clip out of somebody's gun or something like that which are a lot quicker right right however if you're going into a corporate mainframe traditionally what you do is you make a separate dungeon for the hacker. The rest of the party goes gets pizza while you do that, and they come back, and hopefully you're finishing up at about the same time. Oh, my God. So that basically, is, one player plays through the entire movie Tron, and everyone else sits and watches. That is how Shadowrun 1 through 3 usually did it. Yes. Jesus Christ. Yeah, that, that, that just sounds like bad design. It sounds like old-school design. That's what it sounds like. Because oh, yeah, yeah. There's absolutely a way to make that session work and have fun. I've done an entire session of one person just exploring an old mansion while everyone else was watching and gasping and watching the die rolls and going like, I swear to God, if you die, man, I will haunt you for the rest of your life. But 
that's a very specific circumstance. Every time a character in a cyberpunk game wanted to hack something, having to do this, oh, good lord, I think I would, I, I think I would plots. It's definitely one of those things that requires buy-in and to do that. Hacking has always been a weird thing. Like in some of the original cyberpunk ones, I think it's cyberpunk 2012. I might get that title wrong. In that game, you had your long distance charges and they were calculated your euro dollar by the minute, depending on how far the system you were dialing out was. I think I remember this actually. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Just... I, yeah. That was also when the original Deadlands actually had a cost to send a telegram that was per letter. Yeah, and that is something that would make sense in the cultural matrix of that time when you were paying for internet by the minute where right. there was no free lunch or only phone freakers were getting free long distance. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which, this is that's actually an interesting segue to a channel that I really enjoy that I think our listeners might as well, especially if they're interested in what you just brought up, that history of communication. So there's a YouTube channel called Overly Sarcastic Productions. And they certainly don't need our shout out. They have millions of subscribers and we have zero. <laughs> There's a video that they did with, that I found absolutely fascinating, which was on when that change happened in uh, pop culture in basically all of pop culture, where suddenly everyone assumed that you had a cell phone at hand and were able to be accessed versus literally years, just a couple years before that, everything assumed you had charges to call someone over the internet because that's what the cultural lexicon of us, not fantasy, had at the time. Even sci-fi, like genuine sci-fi like Star Trek, assumed that you had to have like a screen nearby, but not one that fit in your pocket to be able to call someone. Oh yeah, 100%. I had recently read the original Neuromancer. There's a line in there where they talk about three megabytes of RAM being a lot of RAM. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yep, yeah, yeah. And I've used way more than that <laughs> just of recording those calls. <laughs> I'd say I've sent an email larger than that. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Jesus. It's, yeah, so it's, it sounds like this crunch thing is just, it's a thorny topic. Something that, like I said, we've been arguing, not we, you and I, but the, the tabletop role-playing game community have been arguing about for literal decades. And there's a give and take there. There's some fun to be had, but there's also some things that are just really, truly ridiculous. Yeah, I'm curious, do you have any hot takes on crunch right off the cuff? Well, so interestingly, my my favorite and least favorite things are also crunch-related to <laughs> Uh, because apparently that's too well. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I actually have some pretty significant thoughts about that because my favorite thing in any role-playing game of all time is the initiative system in first edition of Scion by White Wolf Games. And it releases right around D&D 3.5. So this is mid to late 2000s. We are in an era where there has been the original, there's been the high crunch, uh, and now we're seeing this reaction to that high crunch we're getting things like Vampire the Masquerade. And, well, this is technically a reaction to Vampire the Masquerade as well, but you get the idea. This is that same era where now we've seen a little bit of the everything is a dungeon, you are crawling into the dungeon and hoping not to die. There is the second era where we are now telling stories to a point, but there's still a big focus on combat, and there's still a big focus on fighting monsters to get gold, to get experience. 
And then the third era where now we're into storytelling, people who are into RPGs are no longer just Warhammer nerds that want to play war games, but now people who want to tell stories and want to play dark vampires who wander the night and obey their prince. Well, Scion, Scion was kind of a reaction to that, which was creating a game where you play the sons and daughters of children uh, yeah <laughs> gender neutral children of the old gods and the old gods being the pagan gods so in this system we've got the norse religion we have the greek religion the egyptian religion all the good stuff all the genders of the old world <laughs> all the pantheons yes all the pantheons yes and within it they made a really granular initiative system now a lot of this system in general is pretty granular. They actually have the same thing you talked about of having an attack, defense, and soak role. I tend to house rule that out when I run this system. But the, the initiative system I actually use because it is really granular but fast. And I think that's the big key is fast. If you're going to go detail heavy or crunch heavy, you got to go fast. And what this system does is it says, okay... Everybody on their turn gets one thing, right? You get to move and you get to do one thing. That's it. What it does to make that interesting is time is your resource. So let's imagine we've got a clock, all right? We've got numbers one through 12 and each of those numbers is a tick as the game puts it. A tick is the time that your character gets to act. So if my character... Yukiko acts on tick one, your character acts on tick three, and the enemy character acts on tick four, all right? So on tick one, Yukiko is going to make an attack. That attack takes five ticks. So she does her attack, gets all the results from it, whatever happens, happens, and then her next attack is on tick six. So now on tick three, your character, Horus, gets their attack or their action, and Horus decides to cast a spell. Well, that spell's really fast, and it has a speed of three. So now Horus, their next action is also on tick six. And the monster, whatever we're fighting, it acts on tick four now. It decides to do some big bombastic thing. It rains fire down from the heavens. I don't know. That takes five ticks. Now, Actions range from one to five speed. They very rarely go over five. I have made things that did six, but it's a pretty big problem to go over five because, again, everything is time. Time is your resource. So if you and I want to act at the same time, we need to do certain actions to make sure that we're on the same tick together. I was following along, but I also have played this system before that you're describing so it's true. i do have uh, that leg up yeah um, you're actually in the game with me that we're running right now in scion first edition <laughs> something else i do want to say is that generally speaking i think that a lot of the defensive actions are very quick to pop off so you can quickly defend if you know a big thing's coming or something like that yeah the initiative cracker is very neat and i can also see a potential for having a I would call them set pieces if if you're going to go over five ticks for a spell. So, Right, exactly. And, and what it really allows, at least in my opinion, is it allows granularity for the game master to make something 
better or worse immediately with no other change than the speed. If I want to make a troll able to really threaten a party of five characters, all I have to do is make the troll's attacks a significantly lower speed than normal. Make them attack very fast, or at least recover from attacking very fast. And now they get to have three or four attacks while the rest of the party only gets one each. It lets you tweak the action economy on the fly. Exactly. Yes. And this allows me to do all kinds of things. I can make a sword that's really cool for a player that makes their speed of their attack one less. Well, that player now gets to do, in the case of some combats, two or three more actions than they would normally because they get to use this special sword. Similarly, if I want to make a sword that's really cool and does crazy damage and some big effect, I can make the speed of it slower than normal. And so now it's a choice. If I do this big bombastic thing, I'm going to be stuck for a while. So y'all got to help me. Yeah, it really does set up some very interesting table states that you can do. And also it gives a little micro decision in combat that you normally wouldn't have rather than I roll to attack. Precisely. Yeah, exactly. And now there is still, like, I I won't say this is perfect. It's not. I tweak it pretty heavily. But there's some fun little things to do in here. Some actions, like attack, for instance, is usually five. Technically depends upon the weapon, but typically it's five. Most magic or big spell type things are also speed five. For instance, dash is three. Dash just means you get to move twice. On every tick that you take an action, you get to move. Well, with dash, you get to move twice. And that's only speed three. Now I can run up to something and possibly act before it gets a chance to in reaction to me. And it's all about managing that time because time is really your resource here. Not necessarily health or things like that. Not that health isn't a resource, but health is your resource to keep acting. Time is your resource to be able to manage and work around. And how much of that do you expose to your players? So I will say that's one of the tough parts is, like you were saying with Crunch and Shadowrun, this is one of those things that you have to get buy-in. For instance, the game I'm running right now with Aria, actually, as a player in Scion First Edition, I keep it pretty light. I set out the rules before them and let them kind of make choices on whether they're going to really utilize them or not. Like, I've definitely got a player or two in that game that isn't interested. They're they're not that buy-in type. They're into have a good time with friends and play an interesting character and have a fun evening, and they're not necessarily interested in all that granularity. So I just indicate to them when their turn is. They say what they want to do. I tell them what the speed of that is just to let them know, and, and I just move them around on the wheel for them, basically, not necessarily making them worry about it and allowing the combat to keep going and be interesting. Yeah, that's definitely a balancing act that I've found in almost every time that I've played. There's been folks that have been very interested in the underlying mechanics and very interested in how the stuff behind the scenes is working. And a lot of folks that are there more for the social aspect. And I do not begrudge them at all for that, to be clear. Probably it's because I've spent a lot of time behind the screen. I start immediately going like, oh, I see exactly how this would work. Yeah, exactly. And 
it's funny because it's one of the things that we see a lot today, especially in this new renaissance of tabletop role-playing games, is there's a system for everyone. And there's a lot of advice online of, oh, find the game that your group wants to play. And I absolutely agree with that. You know, when I start a new game, I usually advertise three or four different systems, kind of let the group vote on it and make a choice. But I can remember when I was a 20-year-old and running games and just telling people, hey, this is what we're going to run. It's a great time. You should join. And they did, and they had a fun time with it. You just have to be able to tailor a little bit to them rather than them tailoring the choice of what game to play. And I think that's a really important thing that it needs to be said more often, at least in my opinion. Hey, it's okay to make Dungeons & Dragons a horror game if your group really wants to do that. Is it the best thing for that? Absolutely not. Everyone knows that. Play Call of Cthulhu. Play Delta Green. Do literally anything else with your life. But the Curse of Strahd is a super popular module for a reason, so... Right, exactly. There's clearly a want for this, and that's okay. You, as a game master, can make that decision to tailor the game to the group as well as the group tailoring the game to the game master. It's a give and take. We're all here to have a good time. Doesn't mean the game master isn't a player. Doesn't mean they don't deserve to have a fun time. At least in my opinion, my favorite thing about running a game is just being in the game with my friends and having a fun evening together. I do actually have a couple of hot tangents I want to go on for that if you if we have the time. <laughs> okay, let's do that next session. That is our topic for this next one. Is the game master a player? <laughs> oh, oh, that's a that's actually a really good one. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I have a lot to say on that. So there's your sneak peek for next time. Perfect. Yeah. I love that this is already starting perfectly. I think that this one will be a quick acceptable length, though. I think that we are both of the mind that you should really be playing a system that encourages you to have the kind of time that you really want. What you were describing earlier, where turning D&D into a horror game or something, where there's so many other systems that are there... There can be a lot of reasons why people don't do that. A lot of folks are running Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition, and they're like, well, we'll just tape it and cut it and add these mechanics on and take these out in order to make it have the experience, but it's still close enough to 5th Edition to where everybody understands it and has that buy-in and mental overhead, so it's not a completely alien thing. But there's a huge RPG space. And we should 100% be embracing that as much as we can to find the games that are out there that really reinforce your playstyle. Because there's not a platonic ideal of a TTRPG. There are some that are going to work really well for your group and some that will work not so well for your group. And y'all need to figure that out as a, as a whole team. Yes. Abs- God, yes. Okay, yeah, next week. That's This is going to be a whole thing. Okay. Oh, we'll yeah. get into that next week. Uh, <laughs> Tangent over. Elves, you'll be in for it. All right, so my least favorite thing. Oh, yes. Uh, that's what we were talking about. So I, did, I did originally pitch something to you that <laughs> I then actually read over the week. Um, so I originally said the Gish character class in Tunnels and Trolls. Tunnels and Trolls, for anyone uninitiated, is another one of those very old school games. Was absolutely created in when Gary Gygax was still running games in Ann Arbor, Michigan, created by someone completely separate, but had heard about them. I then actually took a time over the week, reread, did some research, and learned that I was just wrong. What I what I thought was so terrible about that system actually isn't. I read it wrong. 
So this is a lesson to all you people out there. Read things twice. You never know. So I had to take some time and really think about this again and realize that my least favorite thing is actually part of the second edition of Scion. The first edition we talked about is early 2000s. It's crunchy, but not. And it's really focused on feeling epic and being an epic story about epic people. Epic with a capital E and in the classic sense of the story of one's life in a Nordic way. Yes, as opposed to generic-ish fantasy of D&D or the gothic horror of Vampire the Masquerade. Yes, exactly. Scion 2nd Edition released in 2017, and it was actually created by Onyx Path Publishing, which, as some of you might know, is kind of an offshoot of the original White Wolf, the people who made 1st Edition. And it is, in my opinion, a better and worse written system that does better and worse things. It is truly poorly written to a degree that hurts me. They will use words in different ways across the book and just kind of expect you to understand. They needed better editors. It's really unfortunate. In multiple cases, they'll use the word target or opponent interchangeably instead of just calling the thing you're trying to hit a target or an opponent. They needed to get a board game rules writer in there or something. It's really sad. But they are the first game about, at least as far as I'm aware, about pagan religions that got people who actually know about those religions to write about them. The section on the Norse pantheon and your character in relation to that and all of the lore that goes into that and all of the stories and what makes the Norse pantheon unique, what powers they control, all of these things was written by an actual practitioner of the neo-pagan rites today. Fantastic. I really do think that that's a trend that I've been seeing that I fully endorse. Yeah. Coyote and Crow is one that I can think of that this exactly was written. where my brain was about to go. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Coyote and Crow written by First Nation peoples of America. And it's about the First Nation peoples of America in this futuristic sort of world where they were never colonized. It's absolutely incredible. But it's written by people who understand those histories in a functional way. Amazing writing, like the section on the subcontinental Indian pantheon, when it's translated into Hindi, is written in a poetic form of Hindi that this writer understands. It's fucking amazing. But? But! (laughs) This system has, in my opinion, the worst mechanic in a combat system known to man. There is one maneuver... In defending, page 116, I'm staring at it right now, in book one, Hero of Scion 2nd Edition, there is a maneuver called Roll Away. Now, this is a reflexive thing. So I, Yukiko, get attacked by Horus with his sword. So any attack, even a ranged one, I have a roll that I can make reflexively. The difficulty of that roll is equal to my opponent's composure. And composure is a stat. It's an attribute. So someone with a high composure, it would be difficult to roll away from. Someone with a low composure would be very easy to roll away from. If I roll away from them, I move away from the attacker one range band. Well, if that's a melee attack, that means they can't hit me. What it does is it makes the Game Master do one of two things. If they have a player that has high enough defensive attributes to be able to execute this roll away frequently, 
they either have to make all combats in very enclosed spaces where you can't roll away, or they have to make every opponent have a high enough composure to where they can't roll away. Otherwise, they are impossible to hit with anything other than a ranged attack. And as written, there's no counter. You can't pin them to roll away. You can't nope. get them against a wall. You, no, no, no. This well, is... you can, but you would have to be in an area small enough. Yeah. Right, so, yeah. Yeah, there is no rules as written, and I know that's a word we'll probably rant about at mm-hmm. some point near future-ish. There is no way to stop someone from rolling away. That's a that's a Dark Souls boss's worst nightmare right there. Yeah, it's really, really bad. And so effectively, unless I've got a gun <laughs> or a ranged attack of some kind, it is possible for a high defensive player to just never be hit. And what this caused me to do the first time I ran Scion 2nd Edition, I literally just said, no one gets to roll away. This this maneuver doesn't exist. It's not a thing. Moving on. And that's really unfortunate. <laughs> that you just have to take the axe to a mechanic so that you don't have to balance all your encounters around countering that mechanic. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. And and it doesn't even, it's not even like I have a particular skill in roll away. I just have skill in being defensive. When you roll defense of any kind, you just take your highest resilience attribute. And there's three of nine of those. You have nine attributes. (laughs) Three of them are resilience. If I, as a character, decide to put any of my resilience attributes very high, there is no reason for me not to roll away from every attack that's not a ranged attack. Yeah, the issues are apparent and numerous. Yeah, it's a system that, again, could have really, really, really benefited from an editor. Not that they didn't have an editor, I assume. I obviously don't know the people at Onyx Path, but if they had an editor, I just don't think that they were well-versed enough in how RPGs function, or they just never ran into this somehow when they were playtesting. I just, I can't imagine that. It's so unfortunate. And it it brings down a really cool system that, like I said, the write-ups on all of their histories and all of their stories and folklore and real-world religions from the past, it brings a big downer on that. And so what I end up doing when I run Scion is I run a whole lot of stuff from 1st edition, but I use all of the lore and writing from 2nd edition. You've kitbashed a superior game. I have. It's really unfortunate. And it's unfortunate that that's not work that's done for you by the system and that that's something that you have to do yourself. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But yeah, so that is our respective favorite and least favorite parts of any tabletop role-playing games. Apparently, our most favorite parts are crunch and our least favorite parts are crunch. Lo and (laughs) behold. All right, well, that that is our time for this week. We're pretty much right there. So well done, you. Well done, me, at least in my opinion. Oh, yeah. Well, we will we will get all this ready to go, post it up, put some stuff together. At some point, there will be a Patreon. At some point, there will probably be a Discord server and all kinds of other crap. You guys should tune into that stuff and keep an eye out. I think this is going to continue to be a really time, fun time. Really, really time fun. Really time fun. <laughs> Uh, very very time fun for both of us and hopefully get some people to learn about some role-playing games and some of the hobby that you and i have devoted years and years and years to yeah i will see you next time see you next time 
Play the outro music. We have outro music. <laughs>